0: Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofraniewicz. In 2022, the world population will hit 8 billion people. But the discussion around demographics and overpopulation has dramatically changed in the context of climate change, immigration, and differences in birth rates between countries and across generations. So, are we really in the midst of a new population crisis? And if so, is it one of under rather than overpopulation? To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by two experts in the field. Anna Wolnicki is an anthropologist at the International Institute for Environment and Development. Hi, Anna. Hi. Brian Walsh is editor of Vox's Future Perfect section, which covers the ethics of emerging technology, global philanthropy, and how we can all make the future a better place. Hello, Brian. Hi. So... Two-thirds of UK adults think that the world is more at risk of overpopulation than underpopulation. But what do we misunderstand about overpopulation today?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it was it was understandable that you had those fears of overpopulation coming out of the 1960s and 70s. We were at a very fast period of population growth. It wasn't clear really whether resources and economic growth would keep pace with that. But I think what we've seen now is that for one thing, I mean, fertility did decline perhaps a bit faster than was projected. And also we we have been able to, with a lot of difficulty and with the not small additional fact of climate change, increasingly able to like get people a better life even as we have more people on this planet, even as we have the inequality. That goes along with it. And at this point now, we're at a stage where through a number of countries, uh, North America, in, in much of Europe, much of East Asia, you're now facing an issue of less overpopulation uh, than really declining population growth, eventually declining population and real c- concerns about aging that goes along with this such that we won't really have enough younger workers to support what's going to be you know, increasingly elderly class of citizens. And that, I think, is much more than, than overpopulation, necessarily, is the real challenge we face around demographics for the future.
2: Yeah, and I think, I mean, Brian's right. I think it's it's important to note that the, the different population growth trajectories that are unfolding in different parts of the world are actually quite different. And there's lots of intersecting factors that can influence whether or not populations are growing, or whether or not populations are declining. But I think people's focus on overpopulation is slightly misguided, because the reality is, is that it, it's not necessarily the population rate that is the problem, but consumption and the use of resources. So in the countries where you're seeing the the biggest population growth at the moment, certain African countries in particular, there is actually a particularly low resource use and and a very very low carbon footprint. So do you think that the overpopulation debate has
0: darker quite discriminatory undertones?
2: Uh, yeah, I think there are plenty of sort of old colonial racist stereotypes that focus on birth rates in developing countries. But overall, it's clear that birth rates aren't the problem. And it is really worth focusing in on the differences between resource use and consumption habits. So consumption and carbon footprints are growing in countries with very low or even declining population rates at the moment, particularly in Europe and America. But actually, they remain very low in countries like the, in the Global South that have very high population growth rates. So, for example, just to give you some specific details, less than 4% of the world's climate emissions are coming from African countries at the moment, but they have the highest levels of poverty and they're on the front line of climate change, climate-induced drought and flooding... One billion people, that's one one in seven people on the planet, currently live in an informal settlement. They have tiny, tiny carbon footprints, but huge unmet needs. Whereas if we look at the upper-middle-income nations, they can account for almost 80% of our material consumption. So there really is a question of, of injustice or justice there that we need to tackle and engage with.
0: Brian, birth rates have fallen dramatically since the 19th century in the West and the 20th century across the world. Why is that? Is that more an outcome of wider access to education and contraception, or perhaps government legislation?
1: I think it's really more of a a factor of the, the first what you mentioned. I mean, both economic growth, children surviving, so you're not needing to replace children as infant mortality declined, access to contraception, which allows you to actually do that. Shifting, I think, cultural attitudes in terms of how many children do people want when they actually have the freedom to choose that number and ultimately how people are spending their time? You know, as we see uh, more women in the workforce, that means that you know, necessarily they may not want to have as many children as before. That's these are all really good things. And in fact, really, the story of if it's population decline is, is in some ways, I think, a story of some success when it comes to economic freedom, when it comes to cultural freedom, even gender freedom as well. So at the same time, you, you mentioned the dark discriminatory undertones we've seen in the population debate. I mean, in the aftermath of those big concerns coming out of the 60s, early 70s, you did see governments uh, in India and in certainly in China, most notoriously, adopt really coercive uh, population control methods. And I think in some ways, you know, as we see with China, where, where population might be declining quite quickly, there's going to be a long-term effect of that. But we shouldn't forget those are infractions on human rights. That's something that's always been in the background here. Population is a hard thing to talk about either way, though, because flip it around and you're like, well, are people not having enough children? Should they, be, should they be induced in some way to do that? It's very hard to move that. I think people are making the decisions ultimately, for the most part, they want to make within the kind of economic environment they have right now. There might be policies that can change that. But really, I think this is a story of, of people doing ultimately and having the families that, that they want for the most part.
0: And we'll come back to talk about those pronatal policies a little bit later on. But for you and your research, do you think that delayed relationships, economic concerns or climate anxiety are any one more responsible for why lots of young people in particular are opting out of having more children?
1: I think they all play a role. Certainly the the concerns around the climate around climate change have risen in recent years. And you do see young people specifically citing that as a, a factor really in their decision to either not have children or perhaps have fewer children I do think ultimately though the bigger effects are delayed partnership changing really in how people partner up as people get married or, or cohabitate later in life you know that does reduce the number of years you might have as a couple to really have children so that may not mean you have no children but maybe it means instead of having three you have two or or one for instance so I think that that to me is the is the real effect and as this changes over time and this has been a, a change's been a you know, running and running for a long time. That shifts cultural norms, I think. You know, big families no longer become as normal as they were, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Societies become less focused around parents, around having children. And that is a cumulative effect, I think, that ultimately helps influence people's decisions one way or another. And lastly, yes, I mean, economic concerns, especially if you're a young person living in an expensive city in uh, North America or East Asia or Europe that's going to limit you as well, you know, and you may want to make more sacrifices to have more children. But I think people ultimately haven't really chosen that. And certainly having high co- housing costs, high education costs, all of that, that also makes it harder to really have the same number of children maybe you would have had 30, 40, 50 years ago.
0: Now coming on to COVID, how has the pandemic changed or accelerated the decline in population growth? Does the increase in deaths have a greater impact than the decline in birth rates?
1: I th- obviously, the the massive increase in deaths during COVID, and we still don't actually have a full grip on how many people have died globally of COVID, that, that has accelerated this somewhat because of the age distribution, I think, of COVID deaths tend to be predominantly those who are older, those who are elderly. That's probably less of a factor than maybe the impact this is having on people's decision to or to not form families and have children during this time period. In the United States over the last year, we saw population growth of just 0.1%. That's about the lowest, I think, since records have been kept, at least in the United States. And I do think you saw a real slowdown in birth, far fewer births because people were, were concerned about the virus itself. It was very difficult to access health care for a while. There was worries about whether children could go to school or not. All of these things are the factors that lead people to either delay having children. And of course, the you know, longer they delay having children, the fewer they may have over the course of their lifetime. So I do think there's going to be a noticeable dip that we can trace back to COVID when we think about the long-term run of population.
2: I do think it's interesting, though, to kind of to drill down a bit and think about it in a slightly more disaggregated way, because there's obviously going to be a few outliers. And I was reading some new research recently that suggested that actually there's been an upturn in birth rates in certain Nordic countries. And that could be as a result of the general parental leave policies that they already have in place. Or it could be just because they live in a, in a society where there are a broader set of social protection policies in place. Which is actually in stark contrast to in the UK, you know, the availability of free childcare before school or or parental leave in the in North America. So again, I think it's always worth sort of drilling down and, and looking at how these population patterns vary from context to context.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: Anna, a recent ONS study found that the UK will have more
0: deaths than births from twenty twenty five. And we often refer to the replacement level or this idea that each set of two parents has two children. How important is the
2: demographic transition in understanding changing trends in global development? I think it's actually important to have a... a A look at the different ways in which population can replace itself. There's a lot that we still don't understand about migration and immigration and the different intersecting factors that can motivate people to move and mobility within countries and across countries. So obviously there are lots of sweeping projections about climate-induced migration at the moment, ideas of people moving from one country to another and crossing borders. But decisions to move tend to be driven by a whole host of economic trends, opportunities or broader issues like conflict and violence journalists are actually desperate for a figure on climate-induced migration. We often get asked, can you tell us how many people are moving as a result of climate change? And the data isn't out there yet. Well, there isn't any credible data out there yet. And so I think in reality, what we need is more research to understand how people move and when. And then there's scope for us to use that data to plan better for for immigration in context where there is a decline in population. So instead of preemptively pulling at the drawbridge or spending billions of pounds on enforcing borders or policing the channel instead that money could be used to to plan more effectively for people to come into the country and in particularly in contexts where the population rate is, is declining.
0: Yeah and that same ONS study found that immigration will be the UK's only growth driver from 2030. Brian how do you think that immigration has impacted our thinking about population and demographic spread?
1: Well, I think Anna's point is incredibly important. And when we talk about population, we tend to focus on births, I think. But really, we should also be thinking a lot about migration. Uh, the U.S., obviously another country which traditionally has gotten a lot of its population growth by migration, has seen that really sharply decline. Really beginning, not surprisingly, when President Trump took over, we had more than a million nets of people coming into the U.S. By the last year, it was down near 350,000. And that was actually still more... Than the number of, of new americans who were actually born over deaths during that time period but if big countries like the us like the uk that are going to have i guess i would say natural sort of or native population decline over time if they can't bring in migrants if they can't create policies that allow that to happen these countries will be in, in trouble really i mean they will need workers they will need innovators they will need people literally to do a lot of the caretaking work and what concerns me is we're seeing this anti-immigration wave really strengthen in a lot of these countries at the very moment when I think this is more important than ever really. And even, you know, in the United States with a new president who, who has a more pro-immigration rhetoric, we haven't really seen that turn around a lot. Now, some of that's due to COVID because it's become just harder to move around. You've got borders closed. But if that doesn't turn soon, I this, this is going to be a real problem. And that's even before we get into the issues of global equity and global justice in terms of allowing people whether it's because of climate change or simply the need for a better life to move to countries that, frankly, also need them.
3: The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a prime minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral. Keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We're proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run-up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: Which countries then will lead the global population growth in the coming years, and how will they be affected by things like climate migration?
1: Certainly, c- countries in Sub-Saharan Africa are the ones that are going to lead population growth. They still have the largest number of young people. They have the sort of have larger family sizes, although have, those have also dropped significantly in recent decades as well. That that demographic shift we talked about is really fairly global. But you will see those countries, countries like Nigeria, for instance, will grow significantly in the decades ahead. And that is going to create an issue because these are countries that were already under a lot of pressure via global poverty. They are under pressure and increasing pressure due to climate change. And that's, again, a situation where I have to wonder if we can allow migration, if we can figure out a way to perhaps shift people or allow people to move, because I think they definitely want to, or some of them do at least, from those countries with really high growth rates to ones where you're in decline That can help balance this out to a certain extent that can help make this long term demographic transition the world will be experiencing in the decades ahead, I think a lot smoother, not to mention, I think more just as well.
2: There's also an opportunity in thinking, again, I keep talking about drilling down but and disaggregating, but I think it's also worth moving beyond the kind of country level analysis to consider the fact that the world is becoming increasingly urban, over 50% of the population is now urban. And so it's not necessarily about countries, but it's about cities too, and how people live in cities, and what that means for our efforts to use resources sustainably, hopefully to sort of leapfrog some of the carbon intensive trajectories that we pursued in Europe and in North America. So there are huge cities in parts of Asia that are continuing to grow, not just because of population growth, but because they attract migrants. Actually, 50% of the world's population is currently in Asia. There's some thinking to do around planning for this urban transition, which is set to continue.
0: And Anna, do you think then that issues around population are really about designing better cities to accommodate for the way that population will
2: change? Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually a real opportunity in uh, in cities. So the kind of the scenes of overpopulation you might have seen on TV in the global south are actually scenes of poor planning. So for years, urban planners and national policymakers have really had their head in the sand about population growth and migration between and with um, between and within cities. And that doesn't mean that people won't come to that city. That just means that they they will arrive and they won't be access to adequate housing or basic services. And so as a result, that's why there are over a billion slum dwellers on the planet. The informal settlements and the informal s- solutions that emerge are just homes to people that are part of that city and very much you know, part of those economies. But there are actually emerging examples of good slum upgrading programmes that are including low-carbon building methods into public housing schemes that have the potential to contribute to this idea of leapfrogging those carbon intensive practices that we've had that we have in Europe and and American cities. These are currently very few and far between but again there is scope there for emerging cities I think particularly in Asia and Latin America to experiment with some of these methods. Now
0: places like Hungary and Poland are pursuing so-called pro-natal policies. Brian what are these countries doing to encourage population growth?
1: Often these countries are, are offering crash rewards for people who have who have larger families, or offering sort of policies like that that sort of in one way not just attempt to take some of the economic burden off having children, but actually actively encourage it. And we've seen this in other countries as well. I think Singapore has tried this too, but it doesn't really work very well. It's been very hard for any government to come up with an effective way to sustainably encourage people to have more children than they might otherwise be having based off both cultural, social and economic. Factors, I think you'll see that uh, continuing to happen. But, but really, that's a, a, a tough, tough road to hoe. I, just, it, I think it doesn't really generally work. It can be quite expensive. Um, and ultimately, people are having children or not having children for reasons that go beyond what any government may or may not want. Uh, although I do expect we'll see a lot more of that in the future.
0: I listened to a fascinating forecast about the Chinese government's contradictory pronatal policies, because after ending the one-child policy, they've also restricted divorce. But in some areas, it's still illegal for women to have children outside of marriage. Anna, should governments be intervening in gender and sex-based rights for the sake of population growth?
2: I mean, I think I agree with Brian. I I don't see many effective examples of interventions that are bordering on intervening on people's human rights fundamentally. I mean there are there are classic examples particularly in Scandinavian countries where there is support provided for people who want to have children but again it comes down to people's individual choice and, and whether or not there's an enabling environment to encourage that. Again I'd come back to a point that I made earlier and I think it would be a much better use of resources to think about how Immigration could be better planned for in contexts that, that where there is population decline. But again, so much money is being spent on on policing borders and oceans, sort of shoring up this fortress mentality where we could be planning for immigration, but unfortunately, it's it's not always a politically popular
0: move. Hmm. So, what should governments be doing to encourage population growth?
1: I mean, to my mind, they should be should be following policies that really make it as easy to be a parent for those who wish to. As possible. And in doing that, you're not just necessarily potentially, you know, making it more likely that people will have more children, if that is indeed your goal, but you will ideally be creating a better life, a, an easier life, a life with more opportunities for the children who already exist. So I think it's, it's almost less of a sort of pro natalist policy, because quite honestly, that also gets into that strangeness in terms of how much the government should even be be saying on that, but rather sort of more of a pro-family, pro family, pro pro-child policy. I mean, we've mentioned the Scandinavian countries a few times, but they are the the leaders in this. And even if they're not necessarily having significantly higher birth rates than some other countries in in Western Europe or in North America, it's certainly a better place to be both a parent and a child than in, I think, countries like the UK or the US. So you're thinking about trying to address housing costs. You're thinking about trying to address childcare, for instance, which is incredibly important. Thinking about adjusting uh, education costs, all these things put together. I think they do encourage people to have more children over time, those who do want to do that, but, but really they just create a better society for, for parents and for young people overall.
0: Now, it wasn't until the time of the Industrial Revolution, around 1800, that the world population reached 1 billion, but the second billion was achieved in only 130 years in 1930, and the third billion in 30 years, 1960, the fifth billion only 13 years, 1987. Is the rate of growth really exponential?
1: That rate of population growth we have going back to eighteen hundred, I'm not sure exactly if it's technically exponential, but it is incredibly vertical. We can see it on a on a graph. And what's really amazing is that it was so slow for so much of human history. We weren't really seeing that. We were seeing gradual increase and then with the industrial revolution it really begins to take off. Now, are we on a track for that to continue? Definitely not. You know, that's, that's clearly the case because we're seeing in so many countries not even getting to replacement level anymore. And even in the high growth countries, you will most likely see family numbers continue to decline as that demographic shift happens across the world. Now, it's going to be strange because the population will continue to grow. We will have more people in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, almost certainly barring some really terrible catastrophe. But- what matters more or perhaps people should be aware of beyond the sheer number of people is that age distribution that I talked about before. You know, if you have a situation where you have a lot of elderly in a country, that is a a policy challenge that maybe we haven't really faced before. And we don't necessarily have a lot of solutions for, again, separate from trying to balance out migration and bring people to countries that that actually need uh, those younger workers. But, you know, we will have a more crowded world in the future. But we won't see, I mean, that, that 1800 to, to 2000 or so period of really, really rapid growth, that's probably going to be a one off uh, in the future.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, conversely, there are similar um, sort of population bulges happening in the global south. So the, like the youth population in Nigeria at the moment is, is of note, because there's lots of young people that have, you know, gone to university, have an education, but there isn't really sufficient economic opportunities for them at the moment. So again, it's In other contexts, it's planning for a growing youth population. So recognising that the population trends and trajectory is going to be quite different in different contexts, but they will need planning. And the planning isn't always focusing on the the actual population size, but maybe the resource use, maybe migration, maybe flows and mobility of people. Yeah, I guess it's moving away from that focus on, on the actual, the absolute numbers.
0: Are we really on track for a 14 billion global population by 2100? And both of you, what will the world look like by then?
1: Well, I will probably not be around in 2100 because I'll be about 122 years old at that point. But my <laughs> guess is that no, we, we will not be hitting 14 billion people uh, by then. I think it's clear that um, family sizes will continue to, to, to get smaller. Uh, and you'll see increase, but eventually, you know, maybe a leveling out, maybe that leveling out is closer nine or 10. I mean, this is more of a, a UN population division kind of question, and that's always subjected to shifts as well. Uh, but no, we won't see that. Again, I think, as, as Anna said, like it's also very important to pay attention to different distributions of ages within different countries. And you know, you can have a youth bulge, and that can be a huge benefit to your country if you have that proper planning. If you can put people to to work, to put people to, into education, that really can lead to really massive growth. We saw that actually with of East Asian countries in the second half of the 20th century. But if you don't have that planning, if you don't have that opportunity, the reverse can happen. That can be a real issue around social stability. I think that's going to be a concern as well. Again, especially if the valve or, or the ability to migrate gets shut off or, or, or prevented.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, I, get, I guess I just add in terms of what the world might look like, I guess that's very much in our hands and in, in the hands of national governments and local governments as they plan for the future. So what you know, what do they want cities to look like? Is there scope to to move away from these ideas of overpopulated, underserved slums and informal settlements to cities that have a relatively low carbon footprint and are able able to meet the basic needs and housing needs of a significant portion of of the population? And so that's that's a bit of a, a, a bit of a dreamy view, I guess. But It requires planning and it requires not just focusing on on immediate short-term interventions that are unlikely to kind of get us to that more sort of redistributive vision in 2100. Brian
0: and Anna, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and The Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes and if you like this episode why not share it with three friends using the hashtag bunker up you can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform patreon just see our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast this is Yelena sofronievich signing out of the bunker thank you for listening see you next time
3: The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jelna Sofrenovic. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters
2: production.